0: We are in John chapter 14 this morning, John chapter 14, and we are with Jesus in the upper room the night before he was crucified. This is an extraordinarily busy and confusing night. The four Gospels give us a disproportionately large amount of information concerning Jesus' final week in Jerusalem. John especially gives us a disproportionately large amount of information concerning Jesus' final night in Jerusalem. John devotes some five chapters to the final night, chapters 13 through 17. Jesus teaches the disciples a lesson in servanthood, stooping over to wash their feet. But what does this mean? When we harmonize the four gospels, we discover disciples still arguing over who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. Jesus celebrates a final Passover and then spontaneously just reorients the whole meal around himself, instituting the Lord's Supper. What is he talking about? This is my body. Eat in remembrance of me. This is my blood. Don't worry about celebrating the Exodus any longer where God revealed His covenant name, Yahweh, and rescued His people from slavery. What does this mean? This would be like asking Christians to stop celebrating Easter. Jesus predicts Judas' betrayal and releases Him from the table to swing the most diabolical crime in all of human history into action. And The disciples are clueless. They assume Judas has gone out to buy food or to give money to the poor. Jesus gives a new commandment. Well, what about all the old commandments? What about the whole Old Testament law? Jesus predicts Peter's denial three times before the rooster crows. That must have been very unsettling to everyone in the room, especially Peter. If he thought he deserved one of those places of honor at the right or left hands of Jesus Christ. And Jesus reveals that he is leaving. But Peter, in John 13, 36, blurts out, where are you going? Jesus now has much still to explain to his disciples concerning his return to the Father and the coming of the Holy Spirit. But the disciples do not fully grasp his identity with the Father. John 14, verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, how have I I been with you so long? And you still do not know me, Philip? Jesus explains that the disciples will go on to do greater works. Well, what does that refer to? If Jesus is the Messiah, doesn't He do all the great works? Jesus will explain the Holy Spirit's role in salvation. He will also explain how the world will react to His disciples and how they should abide in Him. But He's leaving. He must explain the world's hatred For the disciples, so they're not surprised when persecution comes. And Jesus will also offer a lengthy, high priestly prayer. So what does all this mean? After three years of discipleship training, Jesus seems to have reserved an awful lot for the final night. And surely this night in Jerusalem must have been the most confusing night of their entire lives, and to think by tomorrow Jesus will be gone. Can I explain to you their confusion in a very simple way, if you promise not to misquote me out of context? The problem with Jesus is that he wasn't acting very Christ-like. Now when you and I use the term Christ-like or Christ-like character, we mean something rather different than the first century Jew. We mean follow the morals of Jesus of Nazareth. But that's not how the disciples, John the Baptist, or any first century Jew thought about the term Christ. The Christ or Messiah would become Israel's liberating king. He'd raise an army and throw down the Romans. He would liberate Israel the way that Moses liberated the Hebrews in the Exodus. This is what the Christ will come and do. He'd come to Jerusalem on his donkey, and he would destroy the invaders, just as Zechariah predicted the invading chariots in Ephraim and the war horses thundering through Jerusalem. He'll throw them down. That's what the Christ is going to do. And the fact that the disciples are still arguing for positions in the kingdom, in the upper room, indicates they still have a very different understanding of the mission of the Christ. And their confusion will not be cleared up until Pentecost, when Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, stands up and suddenly preaches, God made Jesus the Christ at the resurrection. But for now, when you harmonize the four Gospels and work especially through John's Gospel, it is really shocking how much ignorance remains on the part of the disciples. Also shocking is how much Jesus suddenly reveals just before going to His cross. In fact, when you read the Upper Room Discourse very closely... Just observe how much Jesus reveals for the first time. It actually feels very hasty, like the teacher who got distracted early in the semester and has come to the final class period and he realizes, oh, there's all that stuff I never got into and it all comes out. Teachers, you know what I'm talking about. You've all done it. Jesus is about to entrust the most important mission in the world to these young men, still ignorant. I imagine they were all at Jesus' age or younger, putting many of them in their 20s. How will these young men ever go out and change the world, much less retain all this new instruction? Would you just hold on to that question and understand, the upper room discourse was only the first phase of an extraordinarily busy night. Jesus has yet to journey to the dark Gethsemane. Jesus will be arrested. Jesus will be passed through two trials later that night. How could the disciples possibly retain everything Jesus taught them on that fateful night in light of the coming storm that will hang Jesus on a cross the next morning? This was indeed the most cataclysmic, earth-shattering, gut-wrenching, pivotal night of their whole lives. Their whole world is about to be turned upside down and inside out. Their lives will be permanently changed from this night forward. Would they put their hand to the plow and refuse to look back? After three years of following Jesus, they are confronted with nothing but crisis and confusion. So, that's the context in which you have to read verses 25 through 31. These verses are a survival guide for the disciples as they venture out into the great unknown. Verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. And bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. You'll let them be afraid. That the world may know that I love the Father, rise, let us go from here. Now, would you just quickly observe one more feature of the context <coughs> before we examine these verses? In verse 31, when Jesus says, rise, let us go from here, where is he going? Let's add the word deliberately. Where is he deliberately going? He's about to strike out in a particular direction. Where? Well, the answer will not come for another three chapters. In chapter 15, Jesus continues instructing his disciples as they now rise from the table preparing to leave the upper room. And those instructions continue right into chapter 16. Then in chapter 17, Jesus lifts his eyes to heaven and he begins praying for his disciples, a prayer that occupies the entire chapter. At the end of chapter 17, they are still in the upper room. But would you just glance ahead now to chapter 18 and verse 1? Here we finally learn where Jesus is going. Chapter 18, verse 1 When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with the disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden. The synoptics tell us that was the garden of Gethsemane, which he and his disciples entered. Now we cannot say precisely where the upper room was located. But if tradition, traditional guesses are good, Jesus walked well over a mile, perhaps a mile and a half, around the base of the Temple Mount, down into the Kidron Valley, across a stream, and into the Garden of Gethsemane. And why is he going so far? This feels very deliberate, as if Jesus has some sort of rendezvous with destiny. We'll keep reading. And I can't help but wonder whether Jesus actually clued Judas in to his whereabouts. We certainly have no indication whatsoever that Jesus was running from Judas. He is the lamb going meekly and deliberately to the slaughter. But can you hear the disciples the following day wondering aloud, why did he journey to Gethsemane? Why didn't He run away? Why did He allow Himself to be arrested and crucified? We have no record of the inner turmoil the disciples experienced during those dark moments between the cross and the resurrection. But you can't help but wonder if they began to second-guess everything including Jesus' actions in the upper room and his journey to Gethsemane. What was he doing? Then again, what did Jesus mean back there in the upper room when he revealed all that last-minute information? That was a whole lot of new information for someone planning to die the following day. And what is this business about the Helper? And what about the peace that he promised? There certainly was no peace on earth when Jesus went to his cross. What was he talking about? Well, let's go back now to John 14 and understand the disciples were likely quite clueless as to what it all meant. And you and I would have been equally clueless. However, soon enough, the words of verses 25 through 31 would become clear. Let's take these verses line by line. Verse 25 These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. Now, these things point back to everything that he has said so far, and he has said a lot already. How can they possibly retain all that? Especially when there's more to come. Notice also how Jesus emphasizes His presence while I am still with you. Well, these words are ominous. Is He saying that He is not going to be with them much longer? Jesus knew the disciples were dependent on Him. They had no interest in Him leaving. They can't go it alone, nor should they. In Jesus' ominous words in verse 25, prepare us for the coming of someone else. In verse 26 then, we are introduced to the second of five paraclete, or Holy Spirit passages, Promising the coming of the Holy Spirit. Five times in the upper room, he explains the coming of the Holy Spirit. So verse 26, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will, look at this verb, teach you all things and bring to to remembrance all that I have said to you. In this case, Jesus emphasizes the Holy Spirit's teaching ministry. Yes, indeed, it would seem strange for Jesus to leave so much teaching for the final night before his crucifixion if in fact that's all there is to it. How could they remember all that? how could they digest all the new information and come back and ask their follow-up questions? I mean, Jesus is gone. Yes, indeed, the disciples still need a teacher. A teacher who could both explain everything to them and also bring back to their minds what Jesus had told them. Have you ever wondered how the Gospel writers recalled so many stories? Sayings, parables, interactions, conversations, and sermons of Jesus. Their minds were no different than ours. Imagine sitting down to write a gospel some 30 or so years after Jesus returned to heaven. Wouldn't you be a little fuzzy on some details? Well, the answer is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's going to bring it all back. The Holy Spirit is involved in the inspiration of the Gospels, and that included Him supernaturally bringing back to mind the things that Jesus had told the disciples, and they were able to write those things down. But actually, there is more to the Holy Spirit's ministry than simple recall. Jesus said, He will teach you all things. That sounds like there's more to come. It's often been suggested that Jesus finished his discipling of the disciples before he left the earth as if everything they needed to know, they've got. But that's actually not quite true. There was, in fact, much more to learn. And Jesus is going to pass them off to a new teacher, namely the Holy Spirit. So if that's the case, what exactly did the Holy Spirit teach? What did the Holy Spirit teach the disciples? Well, let me suggest to you four major things. All right? Four major things the Holy Spirit taught. Here they are. Number one, the Holy Spirit helped the disciples rethink the entire Old Testament. Jesus himself, after his resurrection, actually chastised two disciples on the road to Emmaus for failing to understand the law and the prophets. That's the entire Old Testament. And specifically, how it all pointed to him. We find that account in Luke chapter 24. But Jesus has no sooner chastised the disciples for their failure before he suddenly disappears. Well, who's going to explain all that now? Jesus is gone again. Verse 26, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. Now, when you read how the Spirit came on the apostles at Pentecost and then read Peter's first sermon at Pentecost, You actually observe this reorientation happening in real time. All of a sudden, Peter is preaching the Psalms and Joel with a clarity that you can't imagine Peter having back in the upper room. In the upper room, the disciples are still arguing about who's greatest in the kingdom. In rethinking the Old Testament, the disciples are quite literally thinking through the transition between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. What does this all mean? What did it mean to live as a Jew under the Old Covenant, given at Sinai? And what does it mean now to live as a member of the Church under the New Covenant inaugurated by Jesus Christ? How does this all fit together? There's a whole lot to be explained. And in fact, much of Romans and Hebrews are devoted to understanding this enormous transition in human history. When I read Romans, when I read Hebrews, I am certain, I am absolutely certain, I would not have figured all that out without the help of the Holy Spirit. Nobody could have. So again, the Holy Spirit will help the disciples rethink the entire Old Testament. Secondly, the Holy Spirit will help the disciples understand the true meaning of the death and resurrection of the Messiah. On three recorded occasions, Jesus explained that he was going to Jerusalem to die and resurrect. But each time, the Gospels make it clear the disciples did not understand. Listen to Luke 18. Here Jesus describes his death as he approaches Jerusalem for the final time. This is the third time he's mentioned his death. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and we mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, And on the third day he will rise. Well, did the the disciples understand all that was written? Did they understand the prophets? And Luke's answer is no. Listen to what he said. But they understood none of these things. Really, none of them? Luke also says this saying was hidden from them. And they did not grasp what he said. The disciples don't understand either the death or the resurrection of Jesus. I'd say that's a pretty important oversight for the apostles of the Lamb. Who is going to help the disciples now develop a whole new theology of Christ's death and resurrection? Who's going to do this? When you read Paul in Romans, don't you get the sense he has some supernatural help explaining all this? They need help. Verse 26, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. Third, the Holy Spirit will help the disciples know how to launch the church. Now, Christians often assume that Jesus taught the disciples everything they needed to know about the church. But in fact, Jesus rarely mentioned the church. The term church turns up only twice in the four Gospels, both times in Matthew. In Matthew 16, Jesus promised to build His church in the future. But that same passage also makes it clear The disciples, Peter in particular, don't even understand Jesus' death and resurrection, much less the future of the church. Then in Matthew 18, Jesus establishes a pattern for church discipline. But even there, there is more ambiguity than we like to admit. Ever read Matthew 18 closely? It's a little bit confusing When Jesus instructs us to discipline someone out of the church, here's what he says. Let him be to you as a Gentile. A Gentile? And a tax collector. Well, what does that mean? That sounds like whatever the church is, it's a Jewish institution. Does it not? Put him out, let him be a Gentile. Why am I a Gentile? Would you have guessed from that statement that Jesus intended to fill his church with a great Gentile harvest? That sounds like the Gentiles are the outsiders. So friends, if you only had Matthew 16 and Matthew 18 to help you launch a church, I'm convinced you wouldn't get very far. But in Acts, the disciples have the Holy Spirit. And through his guidance, the church has just launched right out there into the sea of humanity. Would you think about Acts six for just a minute? Here you've got these problems that begin to confront the Gentile church. How are you going to deal? The Jerusalem church, rather. How are you going to deal with all that? Well, here's what the apostles do: they appoint deacons to solve the problem. But guess what? The apostles insist. They insist these deacons must be, listen to this, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. Well, Jesus has just introduced the Holy Spirit. He's just come at Pentecost. And already they think, okay, we got problems. We need deacons. How do you find a deacon? He has to be full of the Spirit. The Spirit is going to help them solve those problems in the diaconate in the first century church. This really is, I think, an extraordinary insight. Back in the upper room, the disciples couldn't tell you who the Spirit was. But suddenly, they they will not go forward without the Spirit. The Spirit is here to help us. And that leads to number four. The Holy Spirit will help the disciples understand the second coming of Jesus Christ. The disciples were indeed looking for the coming of a Messiah, a Christ, that much they had gotten right from reading the Old Testament. But it wasn't all clear from the Old Testament that the Messiah would come, then suddenly leave and come back in the future. The Jews believed the advent of the Messiah would bring about the glories of the Messianic age prophesied by their great national prophets, that the Christ would appear in the middle of human history and take his resurrected humanity back to heaven, well, that's a mystery. In Acts 1, at the ascension, two angels suddenly appeared. And they mildly rebuked the disciples for staring dumbfounded up into heaven, looking for Jesus. He's gone. Well, now what? Well, he's coming back. But when? How? How? And what do we do in the meantime? All of this is still very perplexing. In fact, the ascension was preceded by a question that revealed lingering ignorance on the part of the disciples. This is still before Pentecost. They asked, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? You can hear the confusion still. They're still thinking in the old terms of the Messiah. And Jesus answered, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. Doesn't that sound like they're still confused? But then Jesus adds this also, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The Holy Spirit is coming. That's what you need to be looking for. And He will take control of things in between the two advents. You go and you go get focused on your mission. I gave you a mission of getting the gospel out of the ends of the earth. And once you have done that, hear the words of the angels. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw Him go into heaven. Okay, He is coming back. After our mission is done. So at this point, the disciples clearly have the promise of a second coming. He is coming back. But that's about it. But much of what we know about the second coming would be revealed by the Spirit in years to come as he inspired Paul and John in particular to write about it. He is coming back. So, friends, these are the four areas where the Holy Spirit teaches the disciples all things. So, let's go back through them one more time. First of all, the Holy Spirit will help the disciples rethink the Old Testament, interpret the entire Old Testament. Secondly, the Holy Spirit will help the disciples understand the true meaning of the death and resurrection of Jesus. That needs to be explained. Third, the Holy Spirit will help the disciples know how to launch the church. How are we going to do this? The Holy Spirit will make it plain. And fourth, the Holy Spirit will help the disciples understand the second coming of Jesus Christ. All that to say, don't read too quickly over verse 26. Let's read it again. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Are we thankful for the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit? How far would we have gotten without Him? But there is even more to the work of the Holy Spirit. Let's read verses 27 and 28 together. Jesus says, Peace. I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Somebody here needs to hear this this morning. I woke up thinking about this verse. I thought, you know, surely somebody in the church this morning is going to be full of trouble and fear. I don't know why I thought that, but maybe the Holy Spirit just put that in my mind. All right? These, these verses are for you, my friend. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you love me, you would rejoice, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I am. So Jesus now promises peace to his troubled disciples, and they are shortly going to know more trouble than they've ever known before. Or probably ever imagined. Now, before explaining this piece, would you notice the connection with the Holy Spirit? But wait, where is the Holy Spirit? He's actually not named in verses 27 and 28. All right, but let's think back for just a second to last week's sermon. Last week, we looked at verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. And again, in verse 28, he promised the same thing, I will come to you. But what does that mean? Well, I'll not go back and re-preach last week's sermon, but what we discovered is this, that phrase actually meant three things. It referred to his immediate return at the resurrection, the disciples saw him, but contextually, Jesus is referring to more than just his disciples. It also refers ultimately to the coming of his his coming again in the second coming. But it also refers contextually to the coming of the Holy Spirit, who is in fact one with Jesus. The Spirit, like Jesus, is God. Verse twenty-eight is clear that Jesus' coming actually involves his going away. He is going back to the Father, and they should be very happy that he's going back to the Father, but if he's going back to the Father, how does he come back to them? Well, Jesus already answered that question. Look back at verse 16. And I will ask the Father, he's going to the Father, I'm going to ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever even the spirit of truth in the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you now when you put that together with verses 27 and 28 it all becomes very clear jesus will ascend back to the father but don't despair When Jesus returns to heaven, another helper, the comforter, will come. Another of the same kind, another one like me, another member of the Godhead will come. So don't be afraid. He dwells with you and will be in you. And that's the basis upon which Jesus can say, peace, I leave with you. He's leaving but he's leaving peace with us because the Spirit is coming. And what kind of peace? Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And Jesus adds in verse 29 that he is deliberately explaining all of this ahead of time so it doesn't catch them off guard. And now I have told you before it takes place, So that when it does take place, you may believe. So, put it all together, and Jesus is giving us peace. How? Through the coming of the Holy Spirit. We have nothing to be afraid of. God is still with us. Just as Jesus was with his disciples in the upper room. His presence is still here. So, let's zoom in for just a moment on the term peace. And let's leave here this morning understanding something more of the peace that we have through the Holy Spirit. But actually, we have to do so very hastily. The word peace is actually such an important theological concept that I actually want to return to it and devote a whole sermon to it, because it's widely misunderstood. Suffice it to say here that in the immediate context, peace is the antithesis of what you find in the world. That's what he's saying here. Peace is the opposite of what you find in the world. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives. If you are looking for peace, well, then don't look to the world. You'll not find it. The world does not give peace. The world is actually incapable of offering peace. The world is powerless to give God's peace. The world says, well, more money will bring you peace. It'll just settle you down. Well, look at how miserable the rich of the world are. The world says you'll find peace through power. Well, look at how miserable the powerful are. The world says fame will bring you peace. But look at how miserable and insecure the famous are. Every new administration promises the peace of Jerusalem. And all we've known for 75 years is conflict. And it's not about to end. The first world war was the war to end all wars. And isn't that how war always operates? Just, just, just one more war? Just one more bombing mission? Just one more invasion? And we're finally going to achieve peace. But it's never worked. How did the Romans achieve the so-called Pax Romana, if not through endless wars, only to be destroyed in the end by war? What Jesus offers is true peace. Now again, I can't develop this fully today. But at this stage, let's at least get headed in the right direction. Is Jesus talking about an immediate cessation of conflict between his disciples and the world at large? No. Jesus is about to go to his cross where he will be brutally slain by the same Romans who supposedly gave us the Pax Romana. Is Jesus saying Christians will never again face threatening circumstances? No. Jesus says, "Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid," precisely because we are full of fear and because we face troubling situations. Ironically, Jesus is speaking of peace on the eve of his death and the most troubling day the disciples will ever experience. If you were to ask the disciples at the end of their lives about the most difficult day of their lives, I suspect they would immediately point to Christ's crucifixion. Would they not? To have lived through that dark night of the world would have haunted them to their grave. Nevertheless, just before that day dawned, Jesus offered true, abiding, fear-killing peace A kind of peace the world cannot know and never will know. If we had endured that kind of trauma, and if we knew that Jesus offered the Holy Spirit to uphold and strengthen us through the next trials to come, well, friends, wouldn't we go looking for the Spirit to comfort us in every future trial? That's the point. That's the peace. Jesus has promised us the coming of the Holy Spirit. He will teach us all things. He will explain all things. And He will give our hearts peace in a world that has never known peace. When we are secured by Christ's gospel, we can face down all the trauma All the uncertainty, all the anxiety, all the discouragement out there in the world that just beats us down. Why? Because we are at peace. We are at peace with God. And we are at peace knowing that Jesus has already resurrected to a throne. And His Spirit now has come to abide with us. And we have this certainty from the Apostle Paul In chapter 8 of Romans, where the Spirit is mentioned again and again and again, that He works all things together for good to those who love Him. So in conclusion, can we turn to Colossians chapter 3 and look at verse 15? As we approach this Christmas season in a world that does not know a great deal of peace. Can we allow Colossians 3 and verse 15 to be our meditation this morning? Colossians 3 and verse 15. Here's what the Apostle says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. We have to allow this to happen. That's what Paul is saying here. It doesn't happen naturally, but let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. You know, when the peace of God reigns in your heart, you tend to be very thankful people. Can we just take a few moments and meditate on this verse as we go to prayer? Let me ask each of you to do so individually. And again, I woke up this morning thinking, I, 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 I just have this sense that someone in our church is very troubled today, maybe many people, I don't know, but very troubled, very insecure, <clears throat> lacking peace, and just let let the Word of God strengthen you today by His Spirit. Would you just meditate on Colossians 3 and verse 15 and...